and welcome to episode eight of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey there, Steve. Our guest for episode eight is James Atkin, best known as the frontman of 90s rock band EMF. We got in touch with James, having heard that the upcoming release of an EMF 30th anniversary box set would include, alongside the band's three studio albums and rarities, the original demos for their debut album, Schubert Dip. Yeah, I mean, it felt like a great fit for the podcast. So, so we reached out to James, who not only agreed to come on the show, but he also shared an exclusive excerpt from the original home demo recording of the band's signature song, Unbelievable. The conversation with James covers a lot of ground and there's some really great stories and memories in this one. A couple of times we refer to the Hustle podcast, which James appeared on in November 2019, which is a really nice companion piece to this episode. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation, Ben. It was. I mean, um, you know, it took us through kind of a, a roller coaster tour of, uh, of EMF's kind of career. And mm. they, they really packed a huge amount into that first period of time that they were together. You know, their rise to success was instant and meteoric wasn't it even even if the eventual kind of first end point for the band was very much more kind of bittersweet yeah um, it really was instant and uh, um the version of unbelievable that closes the show um well as james says himself it's a it's very different to what ended up as the finished finished version but it's a brilliant listen isn't it oh it's fantastic <laughs> it's got such kind of um uh, style would be the wrong word for it but yeah the, the feel is just phenomenal i mean i'm so exciting to listen to and i think it's it's impossible not to kind of place yourself in the room as when that music was being made and imagine them i, I imagine them playing it over and over again to themselves and getting so excited about what they created definitely yeah definitely without you know, with the the energy of um, a group of people who had that self belief that that uh, James talks about in the interview, but without possibly knowing just how incredibly massive that song was going to end up being, yeah, it's a yeah. beautiful moment in time captured, isn't it? And uh, yeah, really grateful to to James for for letting us put it on the the show. We spoke before about how the conversations we have really set up the experience of listening to the song at the end of an episode, but this is something else, right? It is indeed, yeah. And I think I think um, you know, one of the things that comes across in the conversation with James is about um, you know, how how instant their success was and how relatively brief you know, the band were in that first instance, you know. Um, and one of the things that we talked about when we were first knocking about the idea about making this podcast, and we were we were both remembering that moment where you finally post your finished demo off um, and your mind starts, you starts to kind of switch to the, the sort of world about, of possibilities about what might arise from that. And I think if at that point for one moment someone had said to us okay you're gonna have uh, you know what comes from this is you have a number one hit in the us you tour the world you play some huge shows you make three albums but it only lasts for six years we'd have absolutely bitten people's hands off for the opportunity for that without a second's hesitation wouldn't we oh a hundred percent half that 
hundred <laughs> percent, absolutely. Uh, it's funny listening back to the to the episode. It did. Uh, it triggered a little memory for me because when when I lived in London, I I, I did know James a little bit, um, and we were sort of uh, friends socially from time to time. We'd we'd hang out, and um, I remember the band that I was in at the time, and we would we were really grafting to try and get a record deal. And this was about the time that EMF were releasing their third, about to release their third album, sort of around that period. I remember being in the locked tavern and uh, saying to James, my God, what have we got to do to get signed? I just being like at that point of desperation, having spent like so long trying to, I don't know, get, get people to take, take the band seriously. And I remember him just, I don't remember his exact, the, the exact words he used, but it was, it was just a, a very sort of calm, don't worry about it. It'll come. Just keep working. Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. thinking that wasn't the, listening to his episode thinking that wasn't his experience. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he must've been hanging on at that point for, for grim life. Wasn't he like, what, yeah. You know, what is going on? You know, because there was so much so much within that journey that was that was difficult for mm. them individually and must have been difficult as a band as well whether that was um i suppose you know it was the 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 sort of instant success was in some ways a little bit of a poison chalice at a, mm. a certain point you know in that but then as a band when they came to make that second record and they made clearly made a stylistic decision to kind of strike out on their own and make a change major make a major change into the music they were making and how they wanted to present it and i think mm. there's a there's a huge amount of integrity in making that move um and he talks about that album with a lot with a lot of um a lot of passion doesn't he you come out of the gate with so much self-belief that you paint yourself into a bit of a corner that you you can't let that drop. And also, when things are getting difficult, you have to maintain that level of, certainly on the face of things, now this is, we are still operating at 100% and and are brilliant and the best band. And, and it's all kind of behind the scenes imploding and relationships are difficult and you're not, you're not that band. You're not what you say you are. No. But you have to maintain that facade if you like yeah and by that point they're well well and too well and truly in the midst of the the, the industry machine aren't they with all mm. the all the kind of rigmarole and the expectations of promotion and delivery of music that comes associated with that you know which yeah. takes away from some of that kind of artistic choice in many ways doesn't it yeah so making yeah. that making that decision to reassert yourself, even even though you know it might not be in your best interest in terms of the people that are, you know, are paying your wages and backing you, is you know it's a bold move. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and yet, yeah, you come out the other side of well, the, the, he talks about is the, the sort of transition from being rock star into uh volunteering and doing a, a a regular job and 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 the journey into to accept that change uh and how long that took and the efforts that he had to make you know uh, the effort that he had to put into that um and it's really uh, yeah i found that really fascinating and to his credit 
Uh, yeah, exactly, mate. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it clearly has taken a lot of time to process and to process that transition, isn't it? And I think that's completely understandable given what happened to them as a band. Yeah, well, I think I think probably we've 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 set this up enough. I, I think. Do you think? I think, we we've, I think we've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great listen, and thank you very much to James for for coming on and being so open and uh, and and sharing his uh, experiences with us. Um, well, we don't normally do the promotional thing, but if you would like to leave us a five star review and and, and uh, say some nice words about us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much to the people that have done that already there are some lovely comments uh, coming back to us which ben and i are hugely grateful for it it means the world so thank you very much indeed um so now we're going to go and listen to our interview with james atkin on episode eight of songs from a padded envelope oh hi my name is James Atkin. I am from the band EMF. Um, also play with Bentley Rhythm Ace and have some solo material. Um, but I'm going to take it right back to the start. And I'm going to play a demo, which was the first ever demo recording of a song called Unbelievable. Uh, and in its rawest state. Oh, and it's so wonderful. It's great. Thank you for thank you for uh, uh, letting us put it at the end of the podcast. It's it is brilliant to listen to. Um, well, just on the subject of that, it's part of an anniversary box set release, isn't it? Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the box set and what the process has been like putting that together? Okay. Um, well, it's the thirtieth anniversary. I remember when it was the twentieth anniversary. We never got it together. We never got it together for the twenty-fifth anniversary. Um, so the thirtieth anniversary, we thought, right, we've got to get and do this because, wow, what's next? Forty, <laughs> fifty. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So we decided to re-release the three albums, um, and we had them remastered, and then we've included some extra content, which is a, a rarities and. Um, B-sides, vinyl, um, and a cassette, which I think you might have guys picked up on it, which is a, a cassette of the original demos that went to make that first album, Shoot It Dip. And there's some extra little bits and bobs there, and it's packaged in a nice box. And it's quite a nice thing to have, especially because I've managed to get rid of all my records over the years, EMF records, so I may get, get them again now on vinyl, so... It must have been a lovely journey dipping back into that. Did you come across some unexpected stuff that you'd completely forgotten about? Yeah, completely. I mean, obviously, I know the first two albums really well. And by the third album, we kind of lost our focus a little bit. That's a nice way of saying it, isn't it? But, um, and I hadn't gone near that album for, you know, 25 years. And it was really nice to go back to that album. It was a double album. So we had to condense it into one single vinyl. So we had to kind of go, well, what what we liking off that? Because, you know, it it was a very self-indulgent album with lots of, you know, not fillers, but tracks where we were kind of experimenting, exploring and just left our own devices where it wasn't very coherent. So I think one of the nice things was making that third album into the album, condensing it into the album. It probably should have been, um, you know, without us being crazy drug 
feel fools who didn't know what we were doing. You know, a bit of a bit, a bit of a hindsight and looking back 25 years, you can kind of see see through the mist a little bit. So that was really sweet. Um, and the rarities and B-sides, obviously, me and Ian, the guitarist, have been writing continuously for years and years. Often, you know, we write a track, nothing ever comes of it. It sits on the shelf. Um, we've got a wonderful girl in America called Cara who looks after the EMF site, but she also collects and catalogues almost everything we do. So it was kind of really refreshing. We put a big playlist together of loads of stuff to, to go through. Stuff. I mean, some of it was really a bit unlistenable, um, but we've managed to compile a rarities vinyl, which it's, it's like, wow, gosh, we did, we could have made another album, but uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been a great experience. Prior to uh, EMF, just talking about when you first started getting into music making, what was the what was the catalyst for that for you? What did you first? What was your first instrument, and how did you get into it? Um, well, I guess I always wanted to be a guitarist, so I learned the guitar, played in lots of bands, playing guitar. Um, when EMF, when we put EMF together, we had too many guitarists and I guess that was the point where I put the guitar down and started singing um, um you know it was at a time in those like mid to late 80s god we're going back now when we were at school when everybody played in bands you know that was the thing it's before dance in the UK before DJs club society stuff like it was all about being indie guitar bands and that's kind of where we kind of learned and honed our skills, really playing in pubs, bars. And, you know, it was, there's was a real thriving music scene back then. You would go out on the weekends and watch bands, you know, it's kind of, it, that was the thing. Every pub, every night had a band on. So, you know, that's how we got into it. Was it a very supportive scene? Were bands kind of supporting one another and, and helping each other out? Yes. I mean, there was hundreds of bands just in the small area where we lived in the forest of Dean and Gloucester. There was, you know, countless bands and bands from lots of different tribes you'd have your punk bands your funk bands your reggae bands your indie bands your synth bands and so it, it was a real community and you can guarantee when you did a gig probably half the audience were in bands as well so you know it was everyone did it it was the thing to do and what are your what are your influences at that time then james what's the music that's ticking the boxes for you uh, well, originally, when we first started, we were just into the jam um, and obviously the hoo and things like that. The first band was just, we just did jam covers. And then we kind of developed a little bit, little bit into doing Cure covers. Um, and then really got into early indie stuff like the Smiths, Lloyd Cole and Commotion. Loved Echo and the Bunny Men. And then the band that was a real turning point was probably New Order that kind of introduced us to electronics and music. We were very indie schmindy guitar bands. And then all of a sudden, like New Order turned us on to dance music and Balearic music. And all of a sudden that was a really refreshing, you know, by the late 80s. For your sort of first first forays into playing live, you were just playing, or you were playing guitar in those bands, were you? And you didn't start singing until EMF? Well, I may have. We did have a couple of bands where I was doing a bit of vocals, but certainly when we started EMF, I had no intention of singing. I'm glad I did, though, because it's not a bad job. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I was very reluctant. I never thought I could be a front man or anything, but 
it was a case of being in a rehearsal room where Ian had a guitar, Derry had a guitar, Zach had a guitar, and I had a guitar, and we had to kind of divvy up who was doing what. You know, <laughs> so Zach went onto the bass, Derry says, oh, well, I'll play some keyboards. Ian obviously stayed on guitar because that would have been stupid for him not to. Um, and then I put the guitar down and just started singing. And it was, you know, it, we had no sort of big ideas or ambitions in those first days. It was just about making a racket and a noise. And we did whatever it took to get that noise together. But your vocal style is very singular. And I mean that in the best possible way. You know, you, you, you hear your vocal and you know instantly that it's you. Is that something you were comfortable with from from the off? Because quite often people try to mimic other folks, don't they? Or, you know, think they should sound a particular way, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's more of a character voice, isn't it? Which I didn't, I never, I, I honestly never thought I could sing for years. And I was just like, what am I doing? This is, I can't sing. And it, that didn't help my confidence. It's only in recent years I thought, well, the character thing is maybe quite important over, you know, ability and technique maybe uh, and certainly the singers I like like your Bernard Sumners or your McCulloch's are not the greatest singers in the world but it is just you know how you express that emotion and character in a voice and yeah I guess maybe the reluctantness in my singing maybe that's its charm I don't know and James did you kind of sit around as a band and talk about where you wanted to go with the sound. So what was the what was the kind of point that it coalesced and, and the EMF sound kind of arrived? Yeah, that's that's a good question. But we did, we had the idea and the vibe of what we wanted the EMF to be. Um, me, Derry and Zach would set up in my mum's living room, jump around on the couch. We couldn't play a note, we had no songs, um, but we had an energy and a vibe. And I befriended Ian in Gloucester he was in the city up the road. Gloucester was like the big city. We were in the Forest of Dean in the Sticks. And just by chance, he was coming through and he, I don't know how he found a payphone, rang me up. He says, I'm going to pop in and see you. And he visited us and he really liked our energy, but we were really, you know, roaring and together at this point. And um, he kind of, he had, he, we looked up to Ian. He had the ability, the skills and the, the, <laughs> the talent. And he, he obviously saw something in us and just thought, right, I'm going to, you know, nurture this. So that was kind of that was kind of the breaking point for EMF. And then I would sit with Ian. I'd got to Ian's mom's house in Gloucester. And we'd sit there, and Ian said, "What we're going to do?" Ian was in a band that was very kind of doorsy, psychedelic. He just finished with a band, Apple Mosaic, that was like that. And I was going, "No, we need to be house, Detroit techno, Chicago house. We need house piano, synthesizers, acid house like that." And you know, this was all quite new to Ian, but I think it excited him. So, you know, Ian obviously took that on board and he, you know, he had, maybe he was looking for something new as well. I think we just hit at that time when dance music was really refreshing and really good. So when you came to sit sit and start writing in earnest, had you done many gigs at that point? Um, you know, when you start the demos that we're going to, or the demo that we're going to hear at the end, how early in that process did, did, did that come? <laughs> Oh, that's weeks, weeks into the start of EMF. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, EMF started really quick. I don't know if we, it's, I mean, it, I, it's quite hard to tell whether we'd actually done any gigs by that point, but we hadn't done many gigs before we were signed and kind of on the way to stardom anyway. So 
the first 10 songs we wrote was the first 10 songs. We went out and gigged and they were the first 10 songs on the album. So it was a very quick process. To, so it wasn't like we kind of went out and gigged loads and worked out what was working, what wasn't working. It kind of fell in, fell into place really quick. And how much of the, um, going back to the sort of the, the, the rave scene, the dance scene, how much of that, the sort of the hmm. excitement and the kind of the DIY nature of that filtered into how you felt about music at the time? Yeah, it definitely did. I, th- I think in, at the start, we were kind of pretending we were ravers. We didn't really understand what this rave thing was. You've got to remember, it's kind of like 80s, 89, 90s, and we were in the sticks in the West Country. Um, it was all, you know, free parties were just about to happen. It wasn't like, you know, happening in 87, 88, like it was in London or Manchester or, you know, we certainly, it kind of got to us slow. We loved the idea of it and we loved the energy and the vibe. We didn't quite understand what was going on. Um, it wasn't till EMF was kind of on its way and we were touring a lot that I came back to our local area and there was lots of parties and raves going on. And that's when it really kicked off and kind of, we felt like we were in that culture then. At the start, it was kind of searching for it and you know we weren't trailblazing or pioneers by any means because uh we didn't really know what the fuck it was and we certainly hadn't taken any drugs by that point so you know <laughs> but you know we called our band ecstasy motherfuckers and we didn't really at that point we didn't know what ecstasy was well you know we had, certainly weren't ecstasy motherfuckers then anyway <laughs> Well, you said before that about the the speed, the sort of the meteoric rise, as they say. Um, just saying, uh, going back to when you'd done those first recordings, did you send them out to people? Did you like kind of target some labels, or um, did people find you? Yeah, no, I didn't. I don't think we didn't send those demos out, and I'm quite glad we did because when you hear it at the end of the show, you'll probably go, "How the hell did they ever get signed?" You know, because <laughs> it is really a ropey. Um, it was it was the gigs that really catapulted us into people's like imagination and like onto people's radar. We booked a few local gigs in a local area. At that age, we just left school, so we had lots of school friends. It was like I say, lots of people going to see live music anyway, and we kind of created this buzz just from doing gigs and there is I'm not sure how but we managed to get a little bit of interest from labels and we invited them down to these gigs and I think it was them seeing the live experience um, rather than the demo which is quite a strange one because it is usually the demos the demonstration tape for the record labels but um, it, it didn't really work for us in that capacity really. That's, that's, really, that's amazing isn't it to think, to think that um, in that short space of time and then becoming solid enough live and exciting enough live to create a, a buzz that kind of reaches people within the industry. Do you, do you think there were like local promoters and stuff who were championing what you were doing? Or... Well, not really, because we promoted all our own gigs. Right. To the point where we'd have like, you know, Mark the drummer's mum on the door taking a pound off everyone on the way in. <laughs> and we'd go down there in the afternoon and paint our own backdrops to hang up in the pub, in the Skittle Alley and things like this. So um, there was a few connections. Um, Ian, because of the band he was in before Apple Mosaic, they were great. And they'd had, to us, it seemed like major success, but it was very minor. They'd, they'd done a tour with Squeeze or a few dates with the band Squeeze. Um, 
and I think Ian knew some people and someone chatted to someone else and um, there was yeah the guy who A&R does in the end the guy Nick Manda from EMI he he was a friend of someone we knew so lucky 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 breaks I guess as well timing and lucky breaks isn't it yeah it all helps right yeah it, it sounds like you had a huge amount of self-belief as a band, James. I was... Oh, believe it, Ben. Bloody hell. We used to just go around telling everyone we were the greatest band in the world. You know, before, <laughs> before Oasis, Oasis came up with this line, we were, <laughs> you know, you know, we just used to go around screaming EMF, X and Mad Funkers, X and Mad Fuckers, and, you know, and have a cockiness and sureness that was... Only comes with youth, isn't it? Really? <laughs> did you did you have enough time to have aspirations? Did you know where you wanted the band to go, or did it just happen so quickly? It that... happened really, really quick. I mean, we didn't expect. You know, we always wanted. I'm sure every member of the band would say, "Oh, I wanted to be a pop star," but it did happen really quick. I mean, we went and did a few gigs, got a deal, did a recording, and then we were on. A, a short three-week tour with a damp ski and in the space of those three weeks things seemed to happen really quick where we were completely unknown um, to releasing unbelievable it climbing the charts and then getting lots and lots of press um, and the funny thing is having a press agent like someone at EMI with a lot of clout who can get you in the red tops with any story that they will go with and usually it was like bad boys doing this and that and causing havoc and you know on the rampage and everybody lapped it up (laughs) you were happy you were happy that that's that's how you were being pitched and yeah i absolutely i loved all the bad boy shit i thought that was really cool and (laughs) i did i honestly i mean i had to do quite a bit of explaining to my parents for certain things like you know being on the front cover of the star being in, with a big E saying in the grip of E and you know trying to explain that away <laughs> to my mum and dad um, <laughs> um, but they, I mean it was quite hard initially they pushed us as a pop band and we had the big pop single so we had the smash hits and just 70 or whatever those kiddie the sort of pop magazines which we were a bit, little bit worried about at the start I'm quite into our career I mean I think after that, we were always fighting against that being labelled as a pop band. When we wanted, we really wanted to be like our peers who were, you know, cool indie bands. And we never, we never really crossed back. We tried, but I think it was kind of just kind of hung on to us that pop legacy. Um, but looking back now, I'm kind of, you know, I'm still friends with bands, members of bands who were in indie bands, and. You know, they never had the smash its covers and things like that. And, you know, it's kind of it's kind of all right now looking back at it. I'd quite like to have seen Gay Bikers on Acid on the front of smash hits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be something, wouldn't it? They were quite, they were quite grubby, weren't they? They were a little bit grubby. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God love them. Yeah. <laughs> when it came to uh, making the second album, the period that the process of making the demos for that or, or writing and making the demos for that second album, I'm I'm kind of interested in what had changed for you going into embarking on that creative process, having gone through what you've just gone through. Yeah, it was a total different experience. I think a couple of things, one of them that the bands had gone out and played constantly for a year, 18 months. And that is when bands become really good. 
you know, we, we'd only been together a few months until we got signed and did that first record. And then we went out and toured America, Australia, Japan, South America, and, you know, playing every night and it becomes second nature. And you just, you know, I watched some of the footage, like uh, gigs, like Reading, and I'm just thinking, gosh, that's a band on fire. That's when you become really, really good. So I think we had that under our belts. We went back to our little town in the Forest of Dean. We built a rehearsal room um, and it was just an old factory unit. And we put like a breeze block shell inside it, set up all the gear, big PA, mixing desks and recording equipment. And we just played as a band and recorded that second album. So very different experience than the first album, very different bands, you know, the essence is emf but it was you know it almost sounds like a different band that second album yeah well that period of touring that you were talking about then are, are there any particular kind of standout shows for you um you, me- you mentioned reading but kind of when you when you're touring and doing those dates and then some, sometimes you'll you'll have a performance where it just all comes together and you kind of think yeah we are we are properly on it here yeah i mean i can't i can't kind of pinpoint one gig certainly by the time the second time we got back to america we were a lot more confident and we'd like learned our trade a little bit um and we kind of figured out how to do it it was kind of it's it's not like turning up and doing a gig set your gear up do a gig it's kind of you roll up into town you go and do a record signing in a record store. Then you'll go to a radio station and some members might go off and do another bit of press. And then you do the gig, sound check and gig. And then afterwards you do a meet and greet. So it's a whole sort of industry. And uh, I, we kind of got quite professional at it, you know, and it's that took a while to get into. But then, you know, it kind of, all of a sudden it feels like, right, this is your job. This is what you are doing. It's not like, oh, we've got a gig tonight. We, is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? It's just like, right, this is it. You know, this is what we do now. We're professionals, or we, you know, we're doing this for a living. <laughs> so I guess that was the turning point when that was happening. So James, that the moment when you hit the the Billboard number one, mm. have you got distinct memories attached to that? The the sort of impact of the realization of something as big as that. Yeah, I mean, I um, I remember we were on tour in America at the time. Um, the chart, the Billboard's very different. Where they, they kind of you go up the charts slowly over a, a space of weeks, almost months. So, whilst we're there, like on a six week tour, I think we, we were in at 120, then it was 80, then 50, then 40. And I was sending postcards home to friends, just going, Oh, well, this and this is in the billboard. And I remember doing the, the last postcard, it goes, We're number one in the billboard charts here, and posting that. And it was like, Now, this and being in America when it happens, um, there's also you know, there's some. Great stories. We crossed the border. I can't remember if we'd gone into Canada or out of Canada, but we were completely peeled out of our minds. And, <laughs> and, the, and the, uh, the border guard was going, well, you're so happy. We're just like, we're number one in America. <laughs> 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 you're <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we got away with it. <laughs> um there was a there was quite a significant achievement around that first album it was i mean you it catapulted you like you said it was you were you meteoric and then globally known um what were you hope what were you hoping from the second album did you because you said you were sort of trying to establish yourselves as more of a kind of rock band is that what you were hoping for with stigma and i think it's definitely what we're hoping for to be taken more serious 
I mean, even the title of the album, Stigma, is like, you know, don't, you know, we'll change a little bit. We've moved on a bit. Um, but we were still very young and didn't know really what to expect. It did become, I don't know if it, it came a little bit of a shock. We thought we were invincible and we just thought we were going to have another smash album. And when we finished the album, we kind of listened to it and thought, wow, there's no singles on here. It's all really, there's no unbelievables or anything. Um, so it was, it was, we loved it. We loved playing it live and the fans loved it. But I think people at the record label were just like, uh oh, they've lost it. So um, that was a little bit of an eye opener, just seeing, you know, how a band can go so big and then fall so quick straight away. So how do you look? Yeah. How do you look back on that album now? Though? How do you sort of appraise it now, James? I love it. I think it's brilliant. I'm so glad we did it. I think that should have been our first album, and then we would have cracked on and carried on and on and on. Maybe. Schubert Dip should have been our sort of learning to be in a band album, you know. Um, it was fantastic. I, I really do like it. I think Ian came into his own with all his guitar riffs and, you know, the production structures of some of the songs. It's, yeah, it's something I'm really proud of. Were you aware at the time, um, you know, when you said that Stigma didn't land in the way that you wanted it to, were you, is that something that you sort of assessed with hindsight or were you aware at the time and um, conscious of that I guess happening? Steve I think it's more hindsight looking back I think when you're in the whirlwind of everything going on you, it's really hard to yeah. sort of evaluate what's going on around you you know it, when you're right in the middle of all this craziness you know um, but people look back at it now and it still seems a favourite with a lot of the fans and you know, people have said, I love it when people say, oh, it's EMF's Paul's, Paul's Boutique. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. as, soon as, people, as soon as people say that, I'm just... That'll do, right? I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, you, if you could go back, um, would, you, would you have done it differently, James, or would you have happily gone down the same route again? I think, uh, I think do exactly the same. I think at that point, yeah, maybe not have distorted vocals on the first single off the album. I think that kind of threw people quite a lot. Um, you know, the, the, the whole climate of music was changing so quick around us as well. You know, when, you know, when we finished Schubert Dip and then we're coming into Stigma, you know, there was bands like Nirvana happening and stuff like this and the sounds was getting really heavy, you know, and, you know, and kids going into record stores were going, oh, shall I buy an AMF album? Or shall I buy the Nirvana album? Or something like that. You know what kids are going to go for. You know, and it happened on the third album. You know, by the time we got to the third album, Britpop hit. So definitely game over by then. So, you know, time is everything. We were listening to your interview on the Hustle podcast, which was really good um, from a, from a while back. And and you and you talked about the sort of the the way that the band ca uh, came to an end. And I was really interested by uh, when you talked about um, how you you were kind of pe people kept you. Uh, you know, you, you were still able to play that role as singer of a band and um, kept you up, you know, kind of uh, in that position, even though the band was coming to an end and you were having to transition away from being in a band into thinking about what now. Um, I just wondered if you fancied saying a little bit more about that, about how that was, how that was for you looking back on it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a strange time in my life. Certainly I was, like you mentioned, dining out on it. And I did dine out on it for about 10, 15 years. 
being a pop star, being a singer in a band. I mean, financially, we did quite well. It was at a time when people sold lots of records. But, you know, obviously mm. that doesn't last forever either. Um, I think one of the, I think probably one of the most worrying things about being in a band is the, how you, do you get out of that? It's, it's taken me 20 years to get my shit back together, to be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> to like just come off cloud nine and, you know, just just think about your relevance of what, what you're doing and what you're up to. And, you know, eventually I did do the break and got out of London and went back to university and felt content just doing a normal job. Whereas like, you know, 15 years before I was going, I'll never do that. Why should I do that? You know, I'm this, I'm, I'm, you know, so I think thankfully I managed to get out of that and over that where some people in bands, you know, you see it all the time, don't you see throwback bands, people who are in bands in the seventies still arcing around, you know, in double denim, thinking they're rock stars. And you just like, well, you know, life's a bit more than that. And maybe I've been a bit cruel, I don't know. But uh, I know you say. I know what you're saying though. How important was moving out of London? For you? Um, it was very important. I mean, it was kind of the opportunity came up, and it just felt like the right time. I always wanted to move back to the countryside because I had a, a wonderful time growing up in Forest of Dean, and I, I fancied my kids growing up in a rural area. Um, we did look, you know, all over the UK, and just ended up up north. <laughs> and it's okay. It's a bit grey and rainy, but. <laughs> how how is it for the band uh in terms of your shared friendships when it comes to a finish like it sounds like the the camaraderie and the kind of shared journey has been such a a pivotal part of your success how does it all come to an end it was it was a really hard experience when me and Ian when I met up in a pub in Camden and we sat across from each other and kind of we just kind of knew it was over it's really hard. You can't keep a band going when you've not got a record deal or any money coming in or no, nothing going on. So we kind of looked at each other and Ian said, look, it's, it's kind of over. We're going to have to call it a day. And I was, I was tearful. You know, it's a massive part of your life. And I, um, I was really upset. I was really upset. It's not like the band broke up or anything. We did it on our own terms and we finished it on our own terms. But it had run its course. By this point, Derry had gone off and he was doing some stuff in a band. Um, Zach was kind of off his scale somewhere, doing whatever he was up to. Um, it was, yeah, it was a hard one, but thankfully we had the years we had. Yeah. Um, that your so having moved away from London and gone gone to university, and mm. you kind of made made that transition to find something else for yourself and getting into. Did you go straight into teaching? I kind of fell into it. I was doing a bit of charity, uh, volunteer work in a, a place in Bradford, helping disengaged youth who were having troubles, teaching like DJing and production skills and things like that. So I kind of fell in, fell into it. And to be honest, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> and it kind of just seemed quite a nice thing to do. And it was, and I love going back to university. I loved doing the academic thing because I, when I left school, I left school with no qualifications. I was just so set on wanting to be a pop star that was all consuming. So I was a bit of a rebel and I didn't do anything. And it was, and I, and I, I there was a, the, 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 you know, the aftermath of that is like, I went through the first, you know, 35 years, 30 years of my life, just thinking I was really stupid. 
and then I went back to college and I thought, all oh, right, okay, so this I can do this. Not that, you know, academic things mean anything, but it gave me a lot of confidence, which I hadn't had for many oh, that's, years. That's great. It's, it's great to find mm. that, you know. And, and Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, glad yeah, it. yeah absolutely. And James, how do you think that your experience with, with EMF and with the, the success and that, how do you think that's kind of informed how you teach, how you pass on stuff to the to people that you're working with? Yeah, I try and do it with humour and I try to not take anything too serious. I really value the, the student because I kind of hop back. To, I, I, can't, I keep forgetting that I'm in my 50s myself. I think I'm like a 20-year-old sometimes. But I kind of feel like I can relate to them. And, you know, I, I get away with a lot. You know, I hope none of my um, bosses are listening to this, but I let my kids get away with murder. You know, if they want to use language in, to express themselves in the classroom, why not you know and you know and i do have to chase kids around a playground for smoking but you know when i do a catch them i'm just like i'm not like Whoa. i'm just like what are you, doing? you know you put me in a tricky situation here <laughs> <laughs> I, I usually say go and find someone else to do it not just the yeah watch. yeah <laughs> um so yeah it has it has informed my teaching quite a lot and um it's I don't know if I'm a good teacher or not really. There's some teacher where it's being a career teacher and it's really important to them. It's, and it is important to me, but I, I can see other things to life and I, you know, I can and just question what kids are going through a bit as well because there's always a backstory to something, isn't there? And, you know, yeah, being aware. Of yeah, this. absolutely. And you've and you've remained very active writing, uh, but obviously mm. Bentley with the Mason playing playing with with, with them and, and and your own solo stuff. How when you've what was it like when you first kind of decided to release something that you'd been working on your own solo stuff? How was that? Oh, it's amazing. I loved it. I really did. It took me ages to get my shit together to do it. You know, I'd spent like, you know, 20 years just trying to learn how to program beats and stuff like this. And it felt the timing was right, and it, but yeah, I, I think I may have left it a little bit late. But I think if I hadn't released those, I think if I'd released those solo albums earlier, they wouldn't have been, you know, they would have been really shockingly bad. I don't know how good they are now, actually, but it took me a while to get my to get it together because I'm kind of doing it all on my own. I, I kind of learned a while ago not to rely on people too much. If you want to get a record or a product out there, you've got to kind of you know, write it, record it, play the instruments, mix it, master it, and then, you know, produce your own CDs and stuff like that. So it's been a whole learning process, but it's, it's quite liberating. It's quite, it's great. How, how important is the, the making of it, the creation of the music, weighed up against what comes after when you put the music out? What's the balance like? Uh, it, as, well, as far as time... I guess it's pretty equal, really. It doesn't take me long to write the album. I, I love the process of writing it, and my wife will tell you, given half a chance, I would just be in the studio all the time. I can't get dragged out of there, but there's something about listening to the hypnotic beats going round and round. I could sit there for hours and just twinkle and mess around, tweak things and get really lost in the music. So, and I, I love that. I love just being creative. I think that's kind of quite important to someone to be creative. Um, 
you know, it'd be great if it was a lot, a bit more successful and I was on a yacht at the Med, but you know, <laughs> I've never done it for that. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to dock anywhere anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, just thinking about what you just said about um, your love of the creative process, how much of um, how much of that kind of is the same as it was when you first started? Do you, do you recognize the same kind of sensations in creating something, in writing something as you yeah. did initially? And how much has it changed from the experiences that you've had? Um, I think it was a little bit more of a buzz back in the day because it was also new and fresh and it was, I, I mean, it's quite, it's a different experience being in a band. I mean, being in a band is fantastic and just being in a rehearsal room with five of your mates and you can make that noise, that wonderful noise. That is something I really miss. And that's quite different when you're kind of working as a solo artist. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just being creative and working towards that end result and hoping someone might dig it. And they do, right? Well, you know, <laughs> well, I'm not on that yacht at the med, but you know, I'm happy. I've got um, it's I've got a good work balance. I, I I probably would find it really hard if I had to depend on making records to make a living. I mean, I've got a quite a few friends who do that and seem to be okay. You know, like Miles Hunt from the Wonder Stuff. I mean, they you know he's worked really hard at it and he would do the books, the solo albums and do, you know, acoustic shows and, you know, be a proper full-time working professional musician. I think I'd find that quite stressful. Mm. I don't think I could, I don't think I could hack it. Um, But I certainly like the sort of balance I've got at the moment of having, you know, a job and then dipping into the music and, you know, when I get bored of my job, I say, oh, no, I'm a musician. And when I'm not really acting as a musician, I say, but I'm a teacher, you know, so it's kind of, it kind of works for me. Have you toyed with the idea of, of writing a memoir, of getting your experiences down on, on paper? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I had um, Tom, you know, Tom Hingley from the Inspire Carpets. Mm. I had him around the other day, unofficially. Um we sat in the garden, we were chatting, and he was just, he, he told me he'd written some books and uh, he was kind of giving me some really good tips. Although by the time he left, I felt like I'd heard the, everything that could have been in the book anyway, because he just talks and talks and talks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he was quite interested to talk to. But um, I think, I, I often think Derry from EMF would probably write a better book because he's a bit more rock and roll and he'd have all the, the stories that, the stories I quite enjoy when I read a book, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know the debauched, drug-taking, you know, everything that's going on. The I'm sure you could, you could, you could have a few of those. Have you read Hookie's books? I, I've read the Hacienda one. Is there another one as well? Which one's the other one? Is there? Well, there's a Joy Division one, yeah, which great. is wonderful. But the new, the New Order one is unbelievable. It's so <laughs> good. Oh, yes, if you pardon the pun, it yeah. is so good. It's uh, it's hilarious. Oh, good. I shall go and check that. I do love a good um, rock, mentally rock thing like that. And I listen to lots of um, podcasts, uh, sort of audio books as well. Yeah. Like random stuff, like, you know, like Emerson Lake and Palmer and Buffalo Springsteen, just anything. Like, you yeah, know, yeah. like Phil Collins. I don't know. 
maybe yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna get that one for myself. But, you know, every everything Bruce Dickinson. It's just like I just I, I just love it. I just love all of it. I've not I'm read like, the Bruce Dickinson one. Is it's that actually quite good? good. I bet. I bet he's got some stories. Oh my god. Yeah, like, he's quite an interesting bloke. I mean, he's just like for a you know a posh bloke. Yeah. Yeah, Hooky's one is is the I'll new one is, is, no. it's ace. Yeah, yeah. Really good. yeah. Uh, James, just just going back to before uh, before the the EMF came to an end and that it had you had you got a fourth album finished by that point? There wasn't a finished product. We'd had demoed some songs, um, and to be honest with you, they were they were quite weak, just because we weren't functioning as a band. Um, we were nowhere near the band we were when we did that second album, Stigma. We kind of just splintered off and there was no sort of, nothing holding us together really. So there was some demos out there, but they were, I don't think it would have you know, rocked the world or anything if they'd been released. Just from the from the Hustle, uh, listening to the Hustle podcast, James, you were talking about um, your, you know, taking road trips with your family and that. And I just wondered about, the importance of road trip and narrative and story and how that fits in with the experiences that you had with the band in America and you know what's the what's the motivation for the road trips now um well just getting my kids to see the world I guess um we kind of try and get over to America every year to do a bit of a road trip in America I'm pretty fortunate that I've got a brother who lives in different places around the world at different times. So he's, he's actually in Philadelphia at the moment. So that's kind of our stop off on the East Coast at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite a different experience from being on a tour bus. You know, there was times when, when we took Pop Leeds South with us, we had two, two, two tour buses. And then we'd have one bus that was the party bus and then the one bus for people who wanted to sleep. <laughs> and then and on this party bus, it was just like, it was carnage. I'd, I remember just waking up from in my bunk one morning and just opening it like that and I'd grow and poppy just lying in a pile of like tequila like that. And people had been swinging off the air, conditioning things on the roof of the bus and it was like... <laughs> Um, so yeah, that doesn't happen when I take <laughs> <laughs> uh james thanks so much for doing this really appreciate it uh give, giving us your time to talk to us can we finish off with you intro in the the song that we're going to hear and i wanted to specifically i wanted to specifically ask if you could sort of set the scene of what's happening when we're listening where is this being recorded and what's the kit that you're using because it's a very evocative piece of music <laughs> not not just because of the fact the demo of the song that it is but mm. Um, I'm imagining you all in someone's living room with a Tascam yeah, 4 yeah. track. and Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. We were in Derry's sister's house. She wasn't there. She'd, me, she'd rented it out to me in Derry, and it was kind of a hangout place for all our friends. And on the other demos that came off that session, there's four demos, you can actually hear our friends, the girls in the background giggling and laughing. It was very raw. There's a drum machine. I think Ian had like an old Yamaha drum machine. Uh, samples galore, because we just thought the answer was to put samples, talking samples on it. So when you listen to the demo, it's actually got a load of samples on there, which if you go to the original multi-tracks of the original, they are them samples are on there, but I think we actually muted them on the desk on the original take. Um, so it was very really early on there was nothing I, I hadn't had my singing on here is the it's cringeworthy honestly it's like 
I don't know what was going on. I obviously hadn't discovered a style at all. It sounds like I'm just talking in a very sort of camp sort of English accent, which, you know, it's unique, but I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> um, I'm glad the, the record didn't sound like that in the end. There are some changed lyrics when, you know, the story is Ian wrote this on his bike about an ex-girlfriend running cycling for Gloucester. So we obviously brought the idea to these crazy foresters and says oh let's make it let's make a demo of this and it sounds like it was done there and then on the spot um in the in the final release one the lyrics are changed quite a little bit but i think from this demo the essence of what unbelievable became kind of was just there and you can you can hear it it's it's got the vibe and it's fun thanks james <laughs> fantastic guys what you gonna play now Bobby, I don't know, but whatever I play, it's got to be funky. One, two, three. It's got to be funky. 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 Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>